In the middle of a dying earth, April Gornick safeguards life through her award-winning paintings, drawings, and prints of what she calls unpeopled landscapes. The award-winning artist has shown extensively in one-person and group shows in the U.S. and abroad. She has work in the Met, the Whitney, MoMA New York, the National Museum of American Art in Washington, D.C., the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C., and other major public and private collections. Apart from her art, April has led preservation projects in the history and culture of Sag Harbor, including the Sag Harbor Cinema Art Center and the Sag Harbor Church. Mia met April while completing an artist residency at the Sag Harbor Church, where she witnessed the depth of April's engagement with the community. Mia sat down with April in 2019 at her studio in North Haven, Long Island, to talk about her creative process. April said that she's much more interested in the effect of the final work. The effect of April's final work is an accidental activism that sprouts from the intimacy of her landscapes. In this interview, April talks about the life that led her to rendering unpeopled landscapes, a life that is perhaps a creative process itself. You can learn more about April and view her work at her website, aprilgornick.com. Uh, April Gornick, welcome to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. It's good to be here. Well, it's it, creative process. It's been something you've been involved in all your life, so it's it sounds strange. Both of us, right? Yes, so. exactly. Um, but I'm just we're sitting in April's studio, and it's the first chance I've seen a lot of reproductions of your work. But it's the first chance, uh, uh, opportunity for me to see. Uh, we're looking at works in progress with uh, fantastic Clearly underpaintings. that one is a work in progress. Yeah, and the underpaintings tend to be vivid yeah, the way this one is. They're amazing. I mean, I would love even to see the work. I Have you ever exhibited the work in progress as not a f finished work, but side by side with your... There's no such thing. <laughs> I mean, the yeah. unfinished work is unfinished, and yeah. I would never show something before it's finished. Um, it's, it's interesting, though. I'm just a student yeah. of the creative process. As students who are learning how to paint, you know, they're so dramatically... The, the underpainting and the colors are so dramatic, and, the, and so I see how they subtly add to the drama in the more muted tones of the finished work. It's amazing to see that. I mean, I would like to see it, but I know it's hard to put things into the world when they're not I have finished. a set of, I have a set of slides yeah. um, that I show, a set of photographs that I show as slides when I do a talk that um, were done for one specific painting um, because of where it was intended to be shown. Um, and it, it's funny, it reads like flip cards because you see the underpainting and then gradually the painting starts to swarm over the underpainting and take over from it. And that is, um, that is a fun thing to look at, but mm -hmm. I would, I don't really, you know, I've, I've always liked, um, since I started painting and particularly the landscapes, I, I like to see work um, as the artist wants it to be seen. Yes. I'm, 
curious about the creative process to a certain extent, but mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in the effect of the final work and the underpainting for me is always important because I believe that there's a, a, a thin dimension on the surface of all of these paintings that exist that's a conversation that's going on between the underpainting and what it is eventually subsumed by on the surface of the painting and it's more or less evident in different paintings that I do mm -hmm. so this sometimes it gets almost completely obliterated but I still believe that there's a little resonance that exists between the the final uh, layer as it were of the painting mm -hmm. although layer seems like a funny name it's not it's I don't think not, of it as it's not piling like one up. Fl flat layer yeah well I just don't think of things as like you know piling on top of each other I, as as I said I think of it as more of an interaction so mm. it, it, it accumulates density and the underpainting is part of that yeah it's just no it's just instructive for mm. a lot of um, art students I think think because it depends on which schools you go to and and a theory has been you know pushed in a lot of schools and and uh, unfortunately a lot of techniques and underpainting it's not I mean I find and I work you know with some neck leading art schools and I find I'm I'm surprised at how um, you know the gaps in their knowledge in mm -hmm. terms of uh, you know classical techniques, and um, so I just find it interesting. And as I look, we're looking around uh, the you know your amazingly detailed drawings, which really feel like paintings. They're in charcoal. They're charcoal, and they're done with um, harder and harder, lighter, and softer, darker charcoals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, layered on top of each other, sure. so that there's um, a density that I can get with two different kinds of charcoal that I don't think would be possible with just one. Yeah. No, they're they're incredibly, you know, detailed and evocative and it's just that as I look at that and I look at your underpaintings, um, what's so interesting is that well I'm attracted to the thought process. I, I obviously the creative process. I'm attracted to, you know, how an artist thinks and conceives. I, I think people are fascinated in that. So I that's what um, draws me to, to your do you friends. do you find that very many people end up explaining their creative process because it seems like there's creative process and then there's what happens at the end that's the art itself that is always kind of necessarily a leap I mean how they're not aware of it at the time but they end up learning about it no I just mean that I think that there's like once an, a work of art happens it sort of removes itself from even the artist who made it, to me, yeah. it's like there's a, a kind of a, a leap that happens. Yeah, it happens in, in the, I think with good art, then it, it lends, it engages the imagination of the viewer, and then it completes, I, that's what I feel, it's like complete in itself, but then it really com reaches its final completion in, in the audience, in the viewer. I don't know if that was what you're asking about. No, I meant well. It's it's an it's an interesting thought. I was really wanting to say that I think that no how, no matter how intentional you are in mm -hmm. the studio, the work always goes off in a direction that can't quite be anticipated. Yes. And the final result is 
always something that's not quite what I thought it would be. Mm. And, and that's partly accident and that's partly the, the reification of the thing itself. It almost feels like it's by itself and not by me. I mean, it always feels yeah. like there's, there's this thing that happens at the end where everything comes together and I can explain what I do in the studio, but I can't explain why it happens when it works successfully, ultimately. Yeah, it's yeah. a kind of, yeah, a lot of people have spoken to me about it, that they're not, I mean, they're in control, you know, they're controlling this thing, but it's like, it has a momentum, mm -hmm. you know, and that when it becomes a finished artwork, it's because it has this life of its own, and that you're just kind of there to guide it in a way, like the way you have a piece of clay or whatever, and you're just there yeah. to help it. Well, I don't want to get too, like, mystical about it but no it's not mystical but they you yeah. most have said to me like you know if they haven't discovered something along the way if they have really done the you know writers or directors or whatever if if they've executed everything that they planned then they feel somehow unsuccessful because then that's more like it's schematic it's mm -hmm. not organic yeah so then yeah mo most have shared that uh, a deep respect for improvisation and the happy accidents and, and all those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. a, a few, you know, love to plot things and maybe they have to, you know, to um, writers sometimes will say, I, I create everything and I make the, I'm the puppet master or whatever, but ultimately I even feel that those forms are in a way collaborative because you're picking up things, you're sitting in a coffee shop, you're overhearing stuff. In the sense that, that the, your material and you are in a collaboration or collaborative? Um, but also, well, collaborative in the, the way readers' imaginations fill it out, but also that there's this, I'm, there's this thing where you'll be picking up things, conversations or, you know, s subtle influences on. I think that you. I'm going to use the word collaborative, but certainly influence. So it's interesting. Yeah, but I do think so. That can happen. I mean, with the but the reader as well would be collaborative. You know, they you know they'll often interpret things. I'm sure you find that with paintings as well, where they'll see things that you hadn't intended, and so then you understand that they're bringing. It's a conversation. They're bringing something to it. Yeah. I just wouldn't have use the word collaborative, but it's not an uninteresting word. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a stickler on that. I just, I just find that, um, I think that, yeah, if you respect that there's an engagement between audiences or an engagement between muses or oh, nature. Sure. Like, well, nobody, yeah. nobody, makes, nobody makes art or writes books to be, mm -hmm. for them to end up in a vacuum that no yeah, one exactly. sees, everybody wants. Everybody wants their work to be seen by other people. Yeah. Or no, it's read. funny. I've had this conversation too. I, I think I use the word collaborative in a, in a different sense. But I've said that, well, particularly also with, more so with photographers. I feel that with painting, sculpture, there is more control and intention. I mean, without a doubt, because they are inert materials usually, you know. Um, but like with photography, when you're capturing move, you know, moving things in the landscape or in people, I do, I've, I've called that collaborative because you can't, you really very rarely can position everything. There, there are certain photographers who do, but 
the mm -hmm. ones that I admire. I just interviewed Ralph Gibson, who I believe is a good friend. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean he he and he really controls with his tight frame. He captures. Yeah, but there is something, you know. I don't know what it is. It's the face or the, and I'm sure you find that with nature, you're capturing something and you're adding something to it. But in but I do feel. That, that, mm -hmm. That's my feeling, more so, but more so with photography or film and those kind of things. But as I look at your, it's just so great to, to see your landscapes, and we were talking about this before, that they feel so intimate, and I think that it's something, something about the scale or the physicality. They feel, I, I feel like there are places that, I don't know if I've been, but I feel, they feel real, they're not just a, a representation of nature mm -hmm. is that I mean what are you looking for how you know what do you when you're well, I'm usually pictures? I usually end up making work from images that I that I recognize as being important or interesting to me for some reason and um, always that pose a certain kind of mysteriousness that make me want to look at them twice mm -hmm. or three times, or in the case of being the person that makes it, like mm -hmm. a zillion times yeah. <laughs> as it's happening. But um, if, if a painting or drawing or print or whatever is successful, then it should, it should trap that ability to generate questions and responses that um, I would hope that a viewer would have a similar would share similarly, mm -hmm. actually. And I, and I don't mean the same, I just mean similarly. Mm -hmm. um, and their conclusion could be looking at the work, a work that I think is, is complex enough to be interesting, could be that they find it oppressive or depressing or strange or surreal or very realistic, or very peaceful, or very happy, or very harmonious. Like it could, I've, I know that in the same work can um, arouse very different reactions in people. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is a kind of success, actually, if the work can straddle various kinds of interpretations, because I've always thought that great art makes itself vulnerable to interpretations. So, to be able to have enough complexity that can generate a lot of different reactions is to me a big positive. And then, I guess, then there's the choice of, you know, unpeopled landscape, why that? <laughs> In order well, then, to do that, but it's just, it's just my language for self-expression. Yeah, well, I think that for me, the, the, way, the way you do it, and I don't, I, I don't, I think that's a difficult, Thing that you you've done is I've seen a lot of landscapes and I've done some skiscapes and not of that scale but um and I know how incredibly difficult it is but what is nice is that I one really feels like you could enter into it there's a temperature uh, there's a there's just something very you know palpable well yeah. I like I you know one thing that I love about painting and drawing and making is that it, it should retain that physicality. Mm. I'm always a little dismayed when people mistake the charcoal drawings for photographs because 
Well, they I, I love photographs, and, and really yeah. great photographs do the same thing, but generally there's a remove, and yeah. the hand that's present in a painting or a drawing, mm -hmm. I think is very, and to me it's extremely tangible, but mm -hmm. to people who are raised on images um, yeah. and without thinking about the hand being present, of course, mm -hmm. they wouldn't necessarily see that, or it would be harder to them. And a lot of people don't know anything about charcoal drawing. I mean, everybody, I mean, photography is absolutely the common denominator of visual information now. So yeah. it's hard for people who say never had an art class or something to mm -hmm. extrapolate into the, the handmadeness of something, I think, for some people. And that, I mean, to me, that seems a little sad because it's a Art is such a profound connector, but it's it's connecting because of its physicality, you know, first and foremost, really. I think so, and I think that it's something that I spoke of, uh, that Eric spoke about about each line, the length of the line, the pressure, the the nuance, um, you know, being it's a language in itself, and so it's it's strange that although we live, I would say, in one of uh, a language, uh, sorry, a period where image is foremost. You know, you find that people re reading fewer books and less. And yet, in, in in a strange way, I do feel that some people's eyes are numbed or desensitized. As you said, you can't tell the difference between a photograph and a drawing. Um, I, but I think it's also the fact that everything is so immediate that they, you know, they think, oh, there's a Photoshop filter for that or whatever, and they don't oh, right. know. There mm -hmm. must be, like, they expect, oh, they don't actually don't know that they, they can't imagine that someone could do that. That's amazing for them. Um, they think, oh, there must be or something but and you it's interesting because you I know that you use technology in the composition stage of your work yeah I think um, Photoshop yeah I, I use Photoshop too I think it's a great tool but not as the final product but could you describe how you how huh. you use it and how I'm gonna I don't know how I use it just like that I say that all the time <laughs> that I think it's a great sketch tool but I yeah. don't think that it's um, something that I would feel comfortable with it's any kind of a final determination of an image. Yeah. Um, but it, but for me, like arriving at a certain kind of um, tension and release in any given image, um, and partly because I'm dealing with space in this in these pictures, like it's important for me to get a sense of that kind of push pull in space. Um, Photoshop is a great way of, of working out sketches that I can work from to make paintings and drawings, and um, simple as that. Yeah. But it's but then then the way that the way that I end up interfering with what I what my intent is, or even what the sketch is as I begin, and that happens all the way down the line. The way that I the way that I, with a pencil, end up actually sketching on the correct size of whatever it is that I'm doing, the way that I fill it in, if it's a charcoal background or an underpainting or whatever, that's all kind of determined. Like, I don't use an opaque projector, so I would never, yeah. like, trace where the thing, where the basic lines go. I think it's really even important to, like, 
let yourself be awkward with a pencil mm-hmm. on a canvas or a drawing. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then as it builds up, you have to kind of let it go where it's going. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes things are pretty true to a sketch that I've done mm-hmm. in Photoshop, but um, most of the time it's you know, markedly different. Sure, you need that space for discovery. But it's a great, I think it's a great time saver. And, you know, I would, I would hope that's how more people use it. I see, I, I see more and more where they're, they're sort of finishing at the digital stage and then it's well, like other people that. And they're make, kind of flat looking. Other people could make great yeah. digital images with Photoshop. It's just, it's not my medium. Yeah. It's like somebody else. It could be somebody else's though, for sure. Yeah, it's just it's an it's a thing that I'm having to, I you know I used to think it was cheating. I used to think taking photographs was cheating. I was like really old school, mm-hmm. <laughs> like and fresco. And like I did too, but that was like that was like a really long time ago when no, I first I really started doing was, landscapes. My husband said, you know, you can take a photo, and I said, no, I can do it from memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's called cutting off your nose just by your face. <laughs> No, and now it's now now I've accepted, but it took a bit of um, persuading. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you you also engage with memory a lot, and and people have compared your paintings and your drawings to kind of dreamscapes that they're not they're very, they're very real, but they're also very dramatic in a shadowy, um, you know, dreamy mem- memory laden way. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that just, there's, for me, there's a kind of truth in that. Like, if, if something feels more, I don't know how to say this, I don't, I don't want to make them fanciful, per yeah. se, but there's, some, there's something true about the intimacy with which you see things in a dream, I yeah. think, that resonates for me so being able to approach that or to have a little containment of that in the work I think is a a powerful thing because it it leads to an invitation on the viewer's part I think to accept the work of art as a work of imagination mm-hmm. and not a work of um, an attempt to recreate something that was there in real life or yeah. whatever I think that because um, I was speaking with other writers that, uh, about your work um, for this interview, and I think that that's what I like about them—the the lighting and the moment. Well, I want to say a moment because it's also kind of timeless, but the image you choose to capture—you know, t- like a twilight or the changing of the light. I mean, these are like you know, it's kind of nocturnal or it's or early morning, I mean, it's like, I think about these are the periods between dreaming and waking mm-hmm. that, um, that I'm drawn to. That's what I like about Well, them. just also when you're fleeting, when you're working in your studio, of course, you get into a kind of a trancey state mm-hmm. that's, that's like, I think, a bridge between consciousness and, and your subconscious, where you're like, you're there and you're awake, but there is something else that's being accessed better than in other waking hours. It's, I think it's really healthy and good for mm-hmm. you. And I think it's, it just seems, I guess, natural in a way that an artist would want to 
in some way express that in their work because that that's like the workspace. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a kind of a true space. Mm. Um, but I, I guess, I mean, finally, I would just say, I guess, it's, it's a, as I said, an invitation to imagination mm. for the viewer if that's more or less evident. And I'd like to talk uh, about your journey to art. You know, uh, you weren't always painting landscapes. I think as you came up, you went to Nova Scotia. Um, you just talk about even before that, you know, why you were drawn to art and then your ev the evolution of your style and subject matter. Uh, um, you grew up in Cleveland? Yeah, so I grew up in the suburbs um, in, you know, a kind of post-war housing, post-World War II housing, uh, in a, a very Caucasian neighborhood, like most people were Irish or Italians, and I went to Catholic school, and I always liked making art. Mm. I always liked it. I just liked making things, generally. Right. Um, and then went to the Cleveland Institute of Art, oh, you know, yeah. low-hanging fruit. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I got, um, I got restless there and wanted to pursue an interest that I developed in conceptual art and I was very comfortable hiding in or keeping a bulwark around me of, of what I was thinking of as conceptualism mm -hmm. then. And I'm not saying that I understood it, I don't think I really did, mm -hmm. but I wanted, I, I took comfort in the idea that, that conceptual art made art smart and it, it, that it could be, it could make it become as good as science. And yeah. with science go explanations and with explanations go excuses or rationales, you know, like yeah. a, a kind of an orderliness. And one big part of my sense of self-confidence has always been my, my mind. Mm -hmm. So getting into sort of an art that would be something that I'd make and I could explain and I had a reason and maybe it would be socially impactful or in some way, you know, that all of that appealed to me immensely. Yeah. And then I impulsively applied to the Nova Scotia College after I didn't get a scholarship renewal at the mm -hmm. Cleveland Institute. It was just like a half half scholarship. Mm -hmm. And I got accepted and I just left. Mm -hmm. But I had one more year to go anyway. But I wanted to go there because they had courses on Marxism and mm -hmm. <laughs> it was very advanced and I thought, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll be very advanced. <laughs> and then by the time I had a, I had a very nice teacher named Richard Jardin and um, like all the teachers there were about 10 years older than the students at the most. Right. And um, we ended up like talking for hours and hours about, about art and why to make it. And I think we both kind of reached the conclusion um, that we were both making work that was illustrating right. texts. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, then people weren't really reading Lacan, but they were reading Piaget and Claude Lévi-Strauss and I was just struggling to make sense of these texts and Marxism and things like that. And then I would make these 
things that were kind of romantic and I was all over the place and mm -hmm. they were it was derivative and I just I just kind of realized suddenly that I was doing something that that wasn't it was secondary to the texts in a way it was uh, illustration yeah. Yeah. I was making I was making illustrations mm -hmm. personally and then I went off and went to Europe for a couple of months the summer after I graduated from there I came back to Nova Scotia got a little studio and just started horsing around in it. And I thought, I got very interested when I was over in Europe in um, art of other cultures, right. African art, oceanic art, whatever. And I started thinking about archetypes and I tried to make work that had symbols in them. Yeah. And then one day in my studio, I just, I had I'd gotten, I kind of, got strayed into the idea that it would be interesting to make something that contained light mm -hmm. and an image popped into my head and, and I made it and I actually needed paint to make it and it turned out to be a landscape and then I've said this story so many times it's oh, awful to repeat it but, but okay. you know I accidentally made a landscape and yeah. but I really liked it I yeah. really liked the idea of making something that had light in it so and you had fun making it there was like a joy of it wasn't a struggle. It was. Much. It was like. It was like. I was driven. Mm. I was like. I was in the driver's seat, and I was being driven. At the yeah. same time, I felt very, mm -hmm. like, everything felt very necessary. My name is Natalia Ventura and I'm the student activist, podcaster, and interviewer with the creative process. I'm a student of peace studies at Chapman University in Orange County, California. As a student, artist, and activist starting my career in 2020, I know the power of the relationship between art and activism. When COVID-19 took over the world, society found new ways to make, share, and consume art at a distance. When the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmoud Arbery led to a peak in the Black Lives Matter movement, artists spoke out against the racism in the American police. COVID and Black Lives Matter currently make up not only our news headlines, but our global visual culture. In effect, society is waking up to social justice issues and art's place in them. A new generation of young artists and activists is germinating a generation that will be responsible for a decade of social change. In a way, this moment is a part of humankind's creative process, a global pandemic, a movement for racial justice, an economic recession, and millions of young people on social media have come together to create a moment that will have a great effect on our future. And these young people are telling us that 2020 is the year we as a collective global society must decide to leave injustice in the past. April Gornick uses her artistry to preserve the imagery of Earth's unreplicable landscapes. She told us in the interview that when she started painting landscapes, everything felt very necessary. I think that as humans, our purpose is to find that moment where everything feels meant to be. This is the moment in which we fulfill our purpose in life. Collectively, that purpose is to leave this earth better than we found it. I truly believe that we are meant to use our individual talents to contribute to social and environmental justice. And this is exactly what April does through her work. 
My hope is that you and I will find that moment, if we haven't already, where we stop and think, yes, this all feels very necessary. Each time someone reaches that moment, we're one step closer to global justice. So you, you made that journey to Europe and you were looking at, you know, what were some of the works? Was that eye-opening for you? What? Well, I went, I, went through, I went through all the major museums I could find. I mean, I started in England and then I went to France and Italy and Switzerland and Germany and Holland and Belgium and then back up to England. So I just made this mm. kind of tour for myself yeah. and I looked at all the museums in all the cities that I went to. I spent about two months doing this. Mm -hmm. And I had a particular interest, as I said, in um, art from other countries, mm -hmm. like African and... I went specifically, for instance, in um, Belgium. I think it was in Brussels or Antwerp. Now I can't remember, but there was like a, a very old ethnographic museum there. Mm -hmm. and I spent quite a bit of time there. I was very interested in looking at art like that and looking mm -hmm. at archetypes, but I was also um, wanting to see all the famous painting and whatnot mm -hmm. that I'd seen in books lo these oh, many yeah. years. So the thrill of seeing it. So, I mean, I yeah. spent, I would, I literally, I mean, the whole time I was there, I did nothing but look at art. I didn't right. like go out, I didn't really hang out with other people, I just, mm -hmm. it was fairly solitary and I was very happy. Mm -hmm. And I just really focused on things that I wanted to, I wanted to see. And right. that was fine. I would get like some divey little hotel and crash and then get up the next morning and go see more art. Yeah. It was a big, it was a big um, ingestion of a lot of different, of history, of a lot of different styles, of you know, what not. I mean, theoretically, I was sort of banking on finding something that would be archetypally interesting, mm -hmm. with the idea that I would make art that had great social impact. Right. So I guess there's a little bit of, there was a little bit of the activist in me back then in terms mm -hmm. of that, but it turned out that, you know, what I really, what I really think of is my worthy art, what has to be my worthy art are these landscapes. Right. And they're much more spiritual and they're much more quirky and they're much less sociologically applicable than yeah, what I was imagining. Exactly. Well, it's not pres um, pres pro prescriptive. prescriptive. Excuse me. <laughs> Stumbling on that one. Um, and yet, as you say, it allows for all these interpretations. And I think that one of the lenses, although I don't, you've said that you're on record as saying that you don't seek it out, but they can be interpreted through an ecological lens and um, you know, the, an environmental lens. And well, I don't I know if you sit well with that or... People, when I first started doing the work, because you know, even in the, the early, you know, kind of hippie movements and mm -hmm. et cetera, people were interested in ecology and mm -hmm. people would ask me if the work had some specific reference to ecology. Mm -hmm. And I would say no, because it really is personal self-expression. Yeah. But 
at this point, what I've been saying lately, and I really mean it, is that if someone looks at my work and thinks, wow, the world is beautiful, we shouldn't wreck it. Yeah, that's a great I'm message. very happy. That's a beautiful message, and, and it's yeah, unfortunate I mean, that a number of politicians haven't got that message. Uh, it's interesting that you had these, um, you know, early on uh, impulse or uh, attraction to, to social issues, and now I sort of see how your art is personal, but then you have all of these um, social or cultural initiatives that you're doing here in Sag Harbor and generally in the Hamptons, and, and, and it's interesting, it's kind of, they complement each other, and yet you have your personal work and you have the work that benefits the community, if you'd like to discuss that, and then also talk about, we didn't discuss how you met, you know, Eric, and you know, how you collaborate. and. Um, the social thing is just something that I fell into. I mean, I, uh, you know, I was raised Catholic, mm -hmm. so you get this sense of, you know, that you have to, you have to be worth something in your community. Mm -hmm. I mean, I admired saints. I, you know, I thought the nuns were great when I was really little. Um, not so much the grouchy priests that we had as the head of our I, I wanted school. to be a nun for a while. I wanted to be a nun when I was like in... I wanted to be a nun when I was in second grade. And I announced this to my mother and she burst into tears and confessed that she and my father had married when he was a divorcee mm -hmm. and that they'd been excommunicated from the church. And oh. she said, so you can't be a nun. Oh, really? And I she was know. crying and I thought, wait, there's something wrong with this picture. <laughs> why <laughs> and that was actually sort of the germ of starting to really detest the catholic church oh, yeah. so i kind of looked at everything with a little harsher scrutiny after that in terms of catholicism but you know the idea that that we're all in this together and you do want the world to be a better place and there's no reason to be unkind and blah 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 i mean you can extrapolate that pretty far out to yeah social justice issues and trying to make a difference so sure and the current pope i think is i mean from what i know is fantastic in terms of his message and really reaching like all you know he seems yeah. a lot better but yeah. i i believe in a woman's right to choose and yeah, i, I really things. really believe that people that we are overpopulating this planet yeah at a seriously alarming rate it's mm. It's one of the issues. It's, no, it is, it is the elephant in the room, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. No one wants to talk about it. And I just went to see a play about Gloria Steinem oh, called yeah. Gloria, A Life. Uh -huh. And there, was, there were pictures of the early demonstrations that she was involved in in the 60s. Mm. And you know, there were people that were walking along that had you know, ZPG, zero population growth, which was part of that movement. Mm -hmm. Like that, even then people were recognizing that there was overpopulation taking place. And now we're at, now we, we have gone past the tipping point. I don't know how we're going to deal with this. Mm -hmm. And I certainly would rather there not be floods and famines and fires and diseases that mm -hmm. curtailed, you know, the this, this success of humanity on this planet is just so sad, but we're so reckless and we're so destructive. It makes me crazy. 
Yeah, I think all those things, it does, um, it does amount to overpopulation because the environment, the lack yeah. of resources, but if, that, if that's just wisely managed, then we have plenty of, you know, but there's all this uncultivated land. There's no, there's there's no wisdom, there's no wisdom going on. And I don't believe, I personally don't believe that all land should be cultivated. Yeah, no, you don't want to. I mean, I don't. I don't want to see Africa lose all of. We've lost like sixty percent of species in the last. Mm. What is it? Thirty years? Oh, it's. I just. It just makes me ill. No, if yeah, all that with you know, um, population um, control, a controlled you know population, um, then we don't have those. Those problems go away. The social tensions go away as well because there's not competing for resources. yeah, so that's 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 one of the many things that we have to. Yeah, but know. that has nothing to. I mean, that's not really germane to what I do here. But yeah, maybe because the world has become so, like, on a collision course with Trump having been elected and everything. It just, I mean, with its own fate, the mm-hmm. world just seems like it's on this huge collision course with the rise of nationalism everywhere, yeah. et cetera. It's it's really terrifying, and I have to say that the the kind of extreme involvement that I have with this community right now mm-hmm. has happened because of this cinema, basically. But then, um, and there having been a fire, and the thought of losing it, and just trying to maintain the the beauty of this little community that we live in out yeah. here on the East End. And acknowledging that it feels very, very good to be able to affect change where it does make a difference. Yeah. And of course, there's the act local, think global mm-hmm. attitude whereby if all small communities could take yeah. care of themselves, you know, you would really shore up a lot of protection for people and, and the planet, I think. In the Gloria Steinem um, play, one thing that she clearly did with the author of the play, I just I should identify, but I don't know who it was. Was she? She admits all these things mm. that she interviewed women about abortions, and she never included herself as having had one. Right. She um, was. She helped start the women's movement. Mm-hmm. The people that she helped start the women's movement with were mm-hmm. black women. Right. And they are just. They have just been swept into the dustbin of history. And she really singles them out and acknowledges that she learned everything from them when she started becoming a feminist. And that prior to that, she just really wasn't that engaged. Mm-hmm. She just, she, you know, she became a Playboy bunny for a while, as everyone oh, knows. Wow. Did you know that? No, I yeah, didn't. I'm sorry. I'm for her journalism career, she became a Playboy bunny because oh, she was right. asked to by her editors. I see. She explains a lot, but she gives feminism. a lot of she gives a lot of credit to underserved minorities who with whom she's been friends, but who were her chief influences, not just influences. I mean, Bella Abza was also huge for her, but that came later. <laughs> Women just generally don't get acknowledged too. Yeah, women. Yeah. Period. So I. I mean, we're still we're still grappling with that. Mm-hmm. It's we never passed the Equal Rights Amendment, mm-hmm. and and we're just now like really really making a big fuss about Me Too. How is mm-hmm. that even possible? I was in this group called the Women's Action Coalition, mm-hmm. 
in the early 90s and uh, we were just so furious about Anita Hill and that oh, whole wow. debacle and that we formed this group and we did all these protests and blah 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 but you know having Kavanaugh come back yeah did like, you not solve this yeah I, I think the fact that that we couldn't get the ERA passed was insane mm-hmm. although now I think it could be reintroduced and it would be like a true equal rights amendment for like everybody you know like yeah. not just focused on women or equal to men sure. but like it's just the constitution is old it's a great document but it's not all men are created equal like we just mm-hmm. we have things that we need to rewrite but well, I, I really I really really love working with women mm-hmm. most of the people that um, have made the initiatives out here mm-hmm. which I'm familiar successful are mm-hmm. women there are yeah. few exceptions of men who really get in there and work well Eric has been active Eric's in the great community. this guy Nick Gazzolo that I work with has, mm-hmm. has been really plugged in um, Eric is Eric is amazing. I mean, he's he so believes in art as mm-hmm. a means of um, change and knitting together the the unraveled threads of society at the moment. He, I mean, he really is absolutely dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. Um, from America Now and Here, that project that he was yeah. working on, such unfortunate timing because it was. It was so celebrated by everybody who heard about it, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, clearly a genius idea. But mm-hmm. I mean, it happened in two thousand eight. It was just like during the crash, and when art was deemed superfluous to yes, survival. I mean, it it is superfluous to survival when mm-hmm. when you really are having people freaking out right and left about jobs and losing jobs and and feeling like everything's crashing down around you because of the corruption of banking and the mortgage industry Mm -hmm. and all of I mean we all know where that came from but um and then of course the right people weren't punished and the right regulations aren't in aren't in place now so who knows it could be repeating itself and not too distant future but hopefully not in such a way um, I, no, wouldn't, I wouldn't it, wish it on anybody, but, but yeah. Eric has, you know, he really has a thirst for social justice, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, like the, one of the great concerning artist citizens. Yeah, <laughs> well, you, you both so. are, and I feel um, now you're doing the Sac Harbor um, Cinema Art Center, and then you're developing, I guess it's the Arts Residency Center at the Methodist Church that you've just taken up. Can yeah. you talk about that? Well, we yeah. just, you know, there's not enough to talk about just because we're so not done figuring out what we're going to do with that. Mm-hmm. But the um, idea is that we'll have this church, we will definitely have artists and residencies, but we will also and invite people from everywhere to come. Yeah. Um, I'll be sending you some. <laughs> you want great. But the 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 beauty of that is that we want to be flexible, and we also right. want it to be local. So we'll have people coming in from elsewhere. We probably will have um, local artists being part of the right. residency too. Like we want we want to make sure that we're plugged into the general creative community here, which is quite robust. Yeah, you have a great, what I understand, I mean, it's tell, tell us about the history of Sag Harbor, because it's unique from the other communities in the Hamptons. Well, because it was a, because it was a deep port, 
it became one of the first custom entries to the United States. And the custom house is still standing, although it, it's moved from its original location, mm -hmm. which was down by the water. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's an historical structure, but it it so happened that it was it was a great it had this great port feature, and then of course when whaling occurred, um, it became a natural for that. And the whaling was originally in the in the Atlantic, until people with their inimitable skills fished out most whales from the Atlantic, and the and it would have the industry would have collapsed had people not been willing to go into the Pacific for whaling, which they did. Um, people think that the discovery of oil mm -hmm. was, and the use of oil in lamps, etc., and as a lubricant, mm -hmm. was the, the root of the demise of the whaling industry, but actually the gold rush was also a coincidental and very, very important factor because people would get on ships mm -hmm bound for the Pacific, where they were forced to go whaling, and whole crews would arrive in San Francisco and right. jump off and go run into the hills and start panning for gold. So that was another like substantial reason for mm -hmm. it collapsing, later obviously, but um, that endured for quite, you know, for decades. So, and then Sag Harbor kept having to reinvent itself. Simultaneously, there were always interesting people here who were creative. I mean, the, the Native Americans that lived here were incredibly creative. Yeah. Whalers learned to hunt from them. Yeah, I, we did some interviews I mean, with the Shinnecock artists. Oh, the, they're yeah. amazing people. And of course, the, the treatment of Native Americans here is just as bad as everywhere else. Mm -hmm. There was a tribe called the Montaukets um, which existed out near Montauk, which is what it's named for, obviously. And there was a guy named, oh, I'm forgetting his name now, a name like Strong's, but that's not quite right. There was a guy who bought up a huge amount of land in Montauk where a lot of Native Americans lived mm -hmm. and forced that essentially forced a diaspora mm -hmm. and they, as they scattered out around the end of Long Island, mm -hmm. towards the Shinnecocks, into Sag Harbor, into a place called Freetown in East Hampton, um, they were declared extinct. Oh. oh yeah, at the beginning of the 20th century, they were just declared extinct. Oh. And they were just recently reinstated, like mm -hmm. in the last year or so. Wow. Thanks to the efforts of one of our local politicians, particularly Fred Thiel. Mm -hmm. He's the oh, first yeah, New York right State right. Assemblyman here. Anyway, so you have like all this, these, these interactions, many of which go unacknowledged. For instance, the, one of the things that makes Sag Harbor so great is that it's, it's long had um, black and white people coexisting. And the, East the Eastville yeah. area is black, Native American, and Irish, largely Irish immigrant ancestry, people that came over and settled into that area in the mm -hmm. early 1800s. So we're talking like 1820, 1830. Wow. And it was, it was mostly the Native Americans and the African Americans who were the great harpooners that would go out on the ships, yeah. who ended up making all the money for all the rich people 
who built all the fancy homes on Main Street. Yeah. And then, you know, so you had... And pushed them out. And what, yeah. Well, they, they, you know, they just were never... It was hard for a, a black person to become a sea captain, for instance. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of notable exceptions, but generally they just wouldn't let them. Sure. And, and in fact, you wouldn't have historic Main Street with its lovely, fancy, grandiose houses mm-hmm. without the labor of these truly skilled people who did this incredibly hard work. I'm not a fan of whaling by any means, but the fact that the fact that you know you had this racial and economic inequity inequity that that so powerfully existed um, was a drag, but it also made for Sag Harbor being a relatively integrated village. I mean they're just mm-hmm. it was kind of a wondrously balanced population. Also, one of the ships, um, there was a ship that was um, captained by Mercator Cooper that went to Japan. It was one of the very, very first, in fact, it was an accidental stop in Japan because Mm -hmm. it um, picked up some Japanese shipwrecked sailors and brought Mm -hmm. them back to Tokyo Bay. And when they arrived, they were met with guns and a, a mob you know, mm-hmm. or a militia, I'm not yeah. sure which, but, you know, people yeah. with implements of war. And they, on board, there was this guy named Paris Conser, who mm-hmm. was a black sailor, who the Japanese had never seen anyone that color, and they were absolutely fascinated by him. Mm-hmm. And he had a kind of, I mean, even in the photographs that you see of him, he just has this kind of mean of like being this balanced rock solid person Mm -hmm. and he kind of won the day and they ended up letting the ship go and it was it was from very early voyages like that Mm -hmm. and a couple subsequent that um japanese maple tree seeds came you know to sag harbor one of the very very first places where seeds like that ever showed up and there are Mm -hmm. still trees growing on Main Street that are direct descendants of those original Japanese upright maple trees from Japan. So, there, I mean, there's just all these funny kinds of, of circumstances that have made Sag Harbor a more complicated, a more international, mm-hmm. and I think certainly with a history equal to most histories of New England towns sure. and villages. And then parallel to that, there were always writers here and some artists, but largely writers. But like James Fenimore Cooper and Melville wrote about Sag Harbor and um, Harriet Beecher's father, Lyman Beecher, preached here and there were early abolitionists. And, you know, we just have had a very interesting mix of people. And Eric's theory... Mm-hmm. And I love this theory, uh, is yeah. that art has always been parallel to Sag Harbor and Sag Harbor's history, mm-hmm. art and creativity. Yeah. And also, I, to, to which I would add that the industrial um, resilience of Sag Harbor, and by that I don't mean like just mere manufacturing, but the ability of people that live here, have lived here, to assume new industrial identities and take on new jobs, and for instance, at one point they kept the bull of a watch case factory going mm-hmm. when it was meant to only be a very, very small 
um, plant, an mm -hmm. adjunct plant, and it had taken over from what had been a building called the Fahey's Watch Case Factory. Mm -hmm. And um, Sag Harbor residents made it so profitable that Bulova mm -hmm. expanded and expanded until it took over the whole really mm -hmm. humongous building that it is today. And you really know your history, because you're also involved, I mean, among the other the many things you're doing, in the Sag Harbor, not foundation, what is it? The, like not the historical partnership, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you've done so many. Well, those the, you're thinking yeah. of the walking tours. The walking tours. Yeah. I mean, you're like a living walking tour. <laughs> well, I got so interested in it because there were so many things that I didn't know. And I confess, I've not always been as fascinated by history, and I mm -hmm. think this is almost always a function of age. Mm -hmm. People get older, and they just all of a sudden become more interested in it because they're like living history themselves. <laughs> I'm sure that's a lot to do with it, but um, the the history here is exceedingly interesting and and oftentimes very peculiar and fascinating. Mm -hmm. So. Um, it's just, it's just been a real labor of love doing mm -hmm. those walking tours and kind of getting to know the village. Yeah. It's just, there's a lot of um, diversity bragging rights here yeah. that I'm happy to know about. Well, I think it's down to, you know, um, engaged citizens like yourself who preserved it. I mean, I've just really, I'm so amazed mm -hmm. at the number of people. There's many people yeah. that have come before me, mostly mm -hmm. women who've been responsible mm -hmm. for preservation here. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's oftentimes the older women who involve themselves mm -hmm. in the historical societies or whatever that really get things done yeah. and keep things afloat. And sometimes they fail. Yeah. And then everybody goes, why did they let a 7-Eleven be put at the end of Sagar? <laughs> Questions like that, and you're like, yeah. where were you when this was going on? As if there were a they, because of course there's no such thing as they. So I think that you and Eric are definitely onto something about celebrating the, um, the craftsmanship. The, the, the history is an arts colony, but this craftsmanship. Like, well, uh, just the creative aspect of Sag mm -hmm. Harbor and the fact that, I mean, people are always throwing around the term makers, you know, mm -hmm. maker cultures, mm -hmm. and um, it's very real here. Yeah. You know, so it would be very interesting. We did this, the creativity survey, that was yeah. Eric's smart idea, to see like who really um, is out here. Like, uh -huh. because I certainly know enough now about Sag Harbor to know uh -huh. how much I still don't know about it right. and who really is here and who really would be interested in whatever. Mm -hmm. And talking to a lot of the very, very old families like Shannon North's family would, would be sure. quite interesting because I'm sure that her grandmother would have a lot to, to add that we just you know, can't guess at. Okay. Every time I go to the Sag Harbor Historical Society, something comes up that right. leaves me agape <laughs> no, I think I'm fascinated. I think it's very interesting, and it's interesting economically. I mean, it's something that it's been discussed a lot that we are exporting our manufacturing, and you know, and yet there's all this knowledge that's disappearing. And what can we do? I mean, it's it's a it's a very, you know, viable source or uh, of, uh, of 
developing economy or not developing economy. It's deeply satisfying to people. Yeah. You know, to, yeah. to make to know things. Something, but you know, to know where it was made, yeah. to know the people who made it. Um, I just think it's important and it's sad when all of that goes to, you know, foreign countries and you know, child labor. It goes without saying that it's not yeah. It's not good. It's not well. Good for I mean, it's us. not. It's not up to people like Eric and me or you to mm-hmm. figure out how to make a place viable. But mm-hmm. we're just, and you know, and healthy and economically yeah. successful. And I mean, what we love, what everybody loves about Sag Harbor is Main Street. It has like mm-hmm. this rather extraordinary Main Street, and it mm-hmm. still has some integrity. And mm-hmm. I'm crushed that little country lane has to move because mm-hmm. Donald Zucker bought up that block and oh. is not giving anybody any leeway mm-hmm. Ugh, for their rents. It's so upsetting. Mm-hmm. But um, I just think it's, it's important to try to make this, to make the church work and to give a creative outlet and integrity, maintain a, an, an integrity, a creative integrity to this place and hopefully it will it will allow Sag Harbor to not just be known for ice cream and day boaters and you yeah. know that's kind of day trippers that's kind of what it it does now i mean it has yeah. great stuff but people most people don't really go to the whaling museum when they come mm-hmm. to town they don't yeah. take advantage of um how kind of fantastic this place is so you should see the Firemen's Museum, which yes. is closed now, but it is so it. great. It's crazy. I have it on my list. I've been engaging out of, out of the local schools. It's closed. Stony it's Brook. closed now. Um, I'll be going to the Whalers Museum, uh, the Whaling Museum, and the library has been great. They've been so welcoming. So uh, yeah, it's just a kind of, it seems like, like an ideal town. I mean, and it's like going back in time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's it's nice because um, history is just very present everywhere, so mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like the soullessness of the suburbs and all those sure. endless strip malls and all those endless, all that endless sameness, you know, that, yeah. that big box sameness that infects everything. I mean, I first got into activism here because the group called Save Sag Harbor mm-hmm. was something that not just I, but a bunch of people kind of all spontaneously formed because CVS was going to come in and take over much of the end of the wharf um, at the end of Sec Harbor, and we all freaked out because we just knew that it would be the end of its mom and popness. Yeah. I mean, the pharmacy is, there's a guy named Ephraim Byram who was the first tower clockmaker on Long Island and was an inventor and a scientist and an astronomer and just like one of the most interesting people you'll ever read about yeah. and he worked at the Sag Harbor Pharmacy when he was a young man so this is like we're talking like the mid-1800s it's an mm-hmm. old pharmacy so the idea of like CVS taking over and then that collapses sure. and you just think like oh yeah yeah but it's hard to remind people too because we're also used to like pressing a button on Amazon or, you know, just like kind of knee-jerkly saving money. Um, yeah. It's hard to remind people that shopping local is what will save a village like this. 
but I think it's important and something that I know from I mean we do have the big chains in Paris on, on the other hand we do have a lot of shops a lot of independent booksellers if, people who if just Paris stops looking like Paris it would be dead it would yeah. just you know you'd kill the goose that laid the golden egg and yeah. we've already seen this happen in poor East Hampton which mm -hmm. used to be like so much more interesting and quirky and mm -hmm. You can hardly talk to somebody who doesn't bemoan it, and it has a wonderful history too, but it's mm -hmm. just been overrun by these stores and pop-up stores and, you know... It's not, it's it's just, not the same. It's not the it's same. It's not terrible, but it's, you know, it's, it has less character, and everybody yeah. likes to come to Sag Harbor because they feel like you're at home when you're here. It's That's, very unique. Yeah. Yeah. And that's nice, and it's nice to feel valued. You get that sense when you go into shops and places that you're valued and you're seen. You're not. It's, you know. Yeah, it's it's a different, it's a very different mentality than a lot of other places. Although I wouldn't, you know, like I, when we lived in New York and we lived in Soho and stuff, I have to say that I pretty much knew all the people that I shopped from. Yeah, it does depend on how you treat people and mm -hmm. they treat you whether you make a kind of a nice relationship with people but but it's certainly harder when everything when the you know it's like it's like fast food it's like when there's like turnover customers supposed to be in and out and it's it's the sameness and I guess I get that people love going someplace else and finding a Starbucks because then they feel like they know something, but it's kind of a sad excuse for home to me. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you Some, if you've like yeah. been here, you kind of you kind of get right away like, oh, there's a much better alternative than that. Yeah, but if people don't know better, then they don't know. Mm. So, and this is, you know, this effort that we're making is not as like some sort of example for everybody else. No, but it is. It's it. It could be, but that's not why we're doing it. We're just doing sure. it because we really like this place and. Every, everyone wants it. a sense of home, and I think that you, you and Eric, are and and your the larger group of people involved in your projects, um, are doing so much. Yeah, well, this this is like the cinema and the Sag Harbor Partnership are completely a team effort. I mean, it's yeah. I'm just you know like part of this thing that we're doing. Yeah. I mean, I'm the head of the cinema campaign, but yeah. it's it's like something that I'm doing with so many other people, Susan, this woman, Susan Mead, is like just a little genius. And she, it was she at the first Save Sag Harbor meeting that took place at the Temple Addis Israel one Sunday in 2007, whom I remember, July 2007, I remember her standing up and we were all going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And she stood up in, with her Texas accent, which surprised all of us, and she said, Y'all are going to need a lawyer. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, a lawyer could be really helpful, but it hadn't occurred to me. Yeah. You know, so, so you, need like, you need like the dreamers and you need the practical minds and you need the workers particularly. Yeah. And mm -hmm. we've, got, we've got a great group of people that are really working hard in the partnership to make things happen. And, and we're forming up the, the cinema arts center board i'm very too, i'm very so. excited to see <clears throat> I'm, i won't when i return visit i'll be excited when yeah. when it's in place
Thank you very much, Aipo uh, Gornick, for adding your voice to the creative process and for all these beautiful, your beautiful art and these beautiful community art initiatives. Well, Mia Fung, thank you very much for this collaborative experience talking to you. It's been a great pleasure, and we're so happy that you're here with us in Sag Harbor, enjoying the village and its rich history and wonderful people. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Natalia Ventura. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.